0: Hello, and welcome to the Mythgard Movie Club for uh, Edward Scissorhands. Uh, this is one I know Kat has been really excited about. I have too, although I haven't seen it in quite a while, so um, I'm I'm actually more excited after having rewatched it. It would it would be bad if it was the other way around, if I had watched it and then been like, I really don't want to do this, but fortunately uh, that's not the case. Um, but to start off real quick, uh, as typical announcements, actually uh, late breaking news, uh, not on the announcements uh, screen that we have here. For those who don't know, um, this afternoon, Corey went uh, to uh, the New Hampshire um Uh, Board of Education Commission uh, meeting where the only uh, item on the docket was to approve Signum University as as, uh, an official whatever approval that they give. And uh, in fact, they did so and did so unanimously. Um, So that's very exciting. It's a big step towards all of the things we've been working towards. for I, I don't even know how long, several years now, um, and uh, yeah, I mean obviously there's there's other hurdles to come, uh, but this is a big big moment for Signum uh, that given that approval, so um, very exciting there. Beyond that, we've got uh, two two moots. Well, we have more than two moots coming up. The two that are sort of in uh, near focus here um, is Baymoot coming up in just a couple of weeks. If you are in the Bay Area, Oakland specifically, um, although you can travel to it, uh, even if you're just in the area, um, go out there. The registration was pushed out to, uh, it it ends next Saturday, so you can go ahead and still register for that if you're looking to go. Um, also, we've got Middle Moot coming up in Kansas City this year. Um, that's, uh, coming up in the beginning of October, um, Corey will be out there um, and he'll be at Baymoot as well as, as he's at all the Moots and uh, that one uh, still, still have some time to register. You can uh, submit your papers if you want to present there and, and uh, all the information is out on the Signum University website, go to signumuniversity.org and you can get to those right off the main homepage or go to slash events. Um, and our fall classes are starting soon. Uh, if you have not taken a look. Um, there's the five classes we're offering as uh, flex and live classes this fall. Um, you can, uh, you know, register for those now. Registration is open, um, and you can go ahead and sign up for those. Um, and we've also got our Signum Academy. Uh, and and uh, Sharon, I guess it's appropriate because we had we had you uh, talking at Movie Club for um, uh, man, I forgot the. Time. <laughs> again, a I just said it. A a time. time, it's right there on my screen. I can't remember.
1: <laughs> that's um, right. and,
0: and that's the next uh, Signum Academy class that's starting up on that's Monday. Right. So yep. uh, that that's a good time. Those have been going really well. Um, if you want to join, you can join. Uh, but especially if you know any uh, kids who are in middle school or high school or any age really who are uh, able to read the book and and join in the participation, uh, we'd love to have you join. Um, probably if you're looking at the attendee list, probably all of you are already joining the More, the Arthur class, but for, uh, posterity's sake, I'll mention that. Um, we're only four weeks in, we have a hiatus next week. So if you're already behind in the reading, like I am, um, you may, uh, <laughs> want to take that extra week and, and catch up, um, on the reading and the recordings that are already out there. Um. But, yeah, uh, that's going – we're a little ways into that, and we'll be doing that one for quite a while. There will probably be several movie clubs where we'll be announcing that one to come, but uh, that's a lot of fun. So lots of stuff going on uh, here at Signum, lots of stuff coming up. Uh, Probably by our next movie club we'll have announcements about our – Fall fundraising. Of course, you can donate anytime. You don't have to wait till the fall fundraising events, um, but th- that'll be coming up soon. Uh, uh, coming up soon. So schedule your plans accordingly.
2: Okay. So uh, just to kind of keep it going with our movie club dates, um, next up um, we have them kind of. We had a little bit of a longer break over MythMoot, but now we sort of have one every month for the rest of the year, um, which is kind of fun. So, um, uh, and I also noticed that we we our slate of space set movies is uh, pretty much over by this point. We had a number of those in a row, and now we have all of these smaller little um, fantasy and sci fi movies coming up. Um, starting with tonight. So uh, the next one on September 6 will be Predestination, um, which I know Curtis really likes and I have not seen. So I'm excited to watch that. Um, it's based on Robert Heinlein's story, All You Zombies. So for anybody who is interested in checking that out, maybe um, I'm going to try to read the story ahead of time. That might be a fun thing to do. And so we have a sense of what Heinlein's original story was versus the adaptation. Um, and then after that, we have uh, coming up, um, probably as part of our you know fundraiser, we'll try to schedule a time that works um, because we have Corey uh, joining us for She um, on October 11th is the plan. And we also uh, have Chris Swank joining us, one of our Signum faculty, who I see is in the attendee list tonight. So she'll be joining us. So I have a, you know, uh, half you know, fifty percent Mythgard faculty on that particular movie, which will be fun.
0: I see Arthur saying that's a great story. I'm not sure which story he's referring to. I think maybe the Heinlein. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna say it's probably the Highline because it's it a great story. A uh, but she's also a good story. Um, right, and he also yeah, says
2: I, not to confuse it with her, which is a good <laughs> candidate for next year's movie club. But it, you know, that's a completely separate kind of story.
0: <laughs> yeah, *All You Zombies* is a good story, and I mean personally, this is, I think, the best uh, Heinlein adaptation, uh, m- movie adaptation at least of of a Heinlein story. So, uh, I mean, not that there's a lot to choose from, and you know. We don't need to get into that. We'll, we'll get into that next
2: time. We can get into wow. that next time. Yeah, because there's surprisingly few, but yeah.
0: So that said, we should probably introduce ourselves. This is the part I usually forget, and so we added a slide to make sure. <laughs> uh, I don't forget. Um, so hi, I'm Curtis Wyant, um, co-host, I guess, here of the uh, Mythgard Movie Club. Um, also co-host of the podcast with Kat, uh, Kat and Kurt's TV review where we talk about science fiction and fantasy, uh, television. Um, and, uh, yeah, do, uh, do a lot of, uh, writing and, and other stuff for clients around the web, but, uh, that's the boring stuff. So, um, this is the fun stuff. We'll stick with that.
2: Um, I guess we'll go down the line. Um, I'm Kat. Uh, so yes, Curtis and I co-host, um, both this, um, uh, this podcast and also the one that he mentioned, Kat and Kurt's TV review. Um, And uh, I work in academic administration during the day and um, Moonlight doing that for Signum at night. So if you've ever taken Signum classes, I'm sure you've exchanged emails with me Um, and have a blog that I don't write in as much as I should. But that's (laughs) that's the thing I hope to do more of in the future. So
3: great and uh, I'm Sharon Hoff and uh, I'm involved in many aspects of Signum University Uh, I support a lot of people and I do a lot of things and if you've ever communicated with us you've probably communicated with me Uh, so um, just this morning I was helping with the uh, signum Academy um, reading program I did a line the witch in the wardrobe session this morning so uh, and I was uh, very happy to be on the panel as as Curtis mentioned with the uh, Wrinkle in Time movie. And that was a great deal of fun. And so I'm back here with uh, Edward Scissorhands.
0: So Kat, this is your pick. This was basically when we were starting the uh, idea Behind the Movie Club and, and sort of the planning. Kat was like, we have to do Edward Scissorhands or else. Um, <laughs> It was de- that, That's literally what she said.
2: not the way it went at she, all.
0: She actually held a scissor up to my throat. And, no, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so do
3: I, Edward's I, hand.
0: I, I don't want to start at the ending um, with the I'm not finished yet. But that's kind of where the film begins, right? Uh, uh, of him being not finished and sort of the situation he's in. But um, I don't know if you had any opening thoughts or words or where you wanted to begin with this. I'm, I'm sure you have some thoughts and words to say.
2: Well, I will just, in my own defense, we did have a list that people voted on and this beat out certain things, among them predestination. <laughs> so um, it wasn't all my doing. But um, yeah, we were trying to think of, when we were trying to fill out our list of candidates, um, one idea was to go through and pick things from you know earlier decades to try to make sure we weren't just choosing things that were recent releases. Um, and when thinking of, of things for the kind of early 90s and 80s period, um, this uh, leapt to my mind as a particular uh, favorite. And um, I've probably rewatched it more often than you, Curtis, perhaps Sharon as well, but I also haven't watched it for a long time. Um, So it was kind of fun to go back. Um, Maybe one kind of opening thing just to kick it off. Um, Arthur already, his first kind of comment here I think is Um, an interesting one, Um, just as like a trivia fact, he says that um, uh, when he noticed in the credits that it was filmed in uh, Lutz, Florida, which apparently he has family there. Um, But just kind of as a, I feel like when you start to look up this movie, um, a common theme with reviews, but also, you know, critical essays and filmographies and, you know, analysis of this movie is the autobiographical element, um, which is kind of where I kicked things off here, um, the the idea that uh, so this drawing that's on the slide there is you know the original Edward Scissorhands drawing of Tim Burton's from when he was in high school. So before there was a story, even there was just a character. Um, and people may or may not know that originally he was an animator um, and worked for Disney um, during the kind of Rough period of the '80s, um, and, when, uh, and Ralph
1: Bakshi, right?
2: And Ralph Bakshi, he um, he he was an animator on the '78 Lord of the Rings. That's right. Um, and went on to that to do uh, work on things like Fox and the Hound and Black Cauldron. Not exactly Disney's golden period, <laughs> but you know, um, a great kind of foundation for any animator. Um, and but obviously he was. Frustrated in that, and and I don't think his vision, which is clearly very strong, made it through to final cuts very often. Um, so from there, he kind of went on into making short films, um, both animated and live action. That got him noticed by certain people, and it you know evolved into feature films. Um, getting you know, Peewee's Big Adventure being the kind mm-hmm. of breakthrough. Um, right and going on from there into um, making, you know, revitalizing Batman as a movie franchise. Um, And then Beetlejuice, I guess, being the first kind of original property that he kind of, you know, that had the kind of Tim Burton-esque stamp on it. Um, And Edward Scissorhands was sort of the follow-up to that. Um, So the fact that this is a character from his teenage years, And coupled with the fact that he talks extensively in interviews about uh, the town being very much reminiscent of his uh, childhood home. He grew up in Burbank, California. Um, So I kind of want to get a little bit. We don't have to do it right now into like exactly what is the time and place of this movie, because I think that could seem like an obvious answer. And then when you think about it, it's less hard to pin down. But um, I don't know, you know, what kind of thoughts people have. But um, you know, just as kind of an interesting way into the movie, kind of starting with Burton's sort of weird point of view. Um, and from this one uh, Entertainment Weekly interview, it describes his neighborhood of Burbank, where it's these kind of, you know, it says here these wow. spick and span home, home, you know, hometown houses with a kind of gothic graveyard at the end of the road that he would hang out in because people don't bother you if you sit in the graveyard. <laughs> and so the the way that's channeled into this beautiful kind of movie set uh, suburbia with the gothic manor at the end of the road kind of reflected in the rearview mirror just sort of stuck out to me.
0: At the, uh, well, and of course it's in a cul-de-sac Uh, Mm -hmm. for a big bag and um, the end of the bag. Yep, so uh, definitely lots of little connections
3: there. I would think it's uh, rather difficult to pin it to any one-time or place because you have the the fresh Spick and Span, seemingly, if not new, at least, very well-kept neighborhood. Um, But you have the kids talking about very current, um electronic devices like cds and and things that of that but then you've also got sort of an interior decorator aesthetic of mid-century modern you know the boomerang things and the the graphics highly graphium geometric designs and and you know all the garage doors don't they have like diamonds on them or something like that all the way down um in a very creepy, almost, in my opinion, small world kind of way. If you've ever seen the small world ride at Disneyland, there's a lot of that sort of coloration and geometric designs and things like that. Um, Mm. but it's, it's, so it's like a hyper realistic in a way it's, um, it's not normal in a sense. It's, it's very, it's, it's, uh, it's sort of out of the normal because it's too normal, I guess, maybe is what I would say. And even the clothes that these people wear, um, you know, the double knit polyester, the groovy, weird, um, you know, uh, slacks that the women are wearing, you know, with the great um, geometric patterns on them. Um, So, and even their makeup is very, like 50s, 60s, kind of thing. So, Mm. um, so it's all over the place.
2: Right, so, yeah, I guess that's kind of a question we can kind of extrapolate from Tim Burton's childhood and say, you know, this is California in the 50s or something, or, you know, or the 60s. 50s, you know, 60s with that kind
3: 70s of, and now 80s with the van right. and the technology. It's, it's, a, it's right. an amalgam so of
2: all those. It's, it's,
0: like it's the,
2: not, not really tied to any one time period. Um, I was going to
0: say, it's like those mashup, like top 40 radio stations, it's like 50s, yeah. 60s, 70s, and today, Right, right. With, you know, today right. being the late 80s, early 90s. Um,
2: right. Well, we can yeah. say when they lump that all into classic rock and it's like this right. and 50 years worth of it's like, you know, the kind of Twilight Zone version of,
3: yeah, you know,
2: kind of mid century America.
3: Yeah. Um, and actually, even
2: I think on Twitter, Curtis said, like, the the waterbed and the Avon door-to-door, like, feel very dated to a specific time. And, and my response is, like, even the actors feel dated to a specific time. I mean, right. so Winona well, Ryder yes. and Anthony Michael Hall have become so synonymous with that late 80s kind of high school movie time. Um, to the to the extent that Winona Ryder now is cast in movies that are about eighties nostalgia.
0: You know? <laughs> right you now she's the mom in Stranger Things and that kind of right, thing. Right,
2: right, <laughs> right. Yeah, um, right. Which I feel like you know there are those actors who feel timeless that you're like they don't necessarily feel like they belong today that they can easily go into period pieces and you're never quite sure like what age they feel from. Winona Ryder doesn't feel that way to me. She feels, and I feel like that would have been true even at the time if you're Tim Burton and you're casting this movie. I feel like to to cast actors from Heathers and, you know, Sixteen Candles says something about how you want it to be Mm -hmm. contemporary to now. Like this is, these are high schoolers from the last five or 10 years of high school drama movies.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they were, you know, let's face it, they were also not really developed. They were plunked down to be that, not anything else. Yeah. Although,
2: and, and one of the articles I read pointed this out, that even though they are kind of iconic, they play against type, that, mm-hmm. you know, Anthony Michael Hall was the the nerd and the geek. Yeah. And here he's the sort of jock bully. And you know, uh, Winona Ryder was known for Heather's and and Beetlejuice, where she's the weird goth intellectual girl, not the kind of blonde right. prom queen that she, right, cheerleader that is her, her, here.
3: Yeah. yeah. And was Heather's before this? I can't yeah. remember. It was yeah, it so. was late 80s. Yep. Okay, and this is 90, I think, right?
0: This yep. is 90. yeah. Yeah. And, it, and, and I mean, thinking sequentially then it's, it's before the, the gritty, you know, turning adult realism of like reality bites, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, which is kind of an interesting, uh, I mean, just thinking, uh, I mean, I know, I know we talk later about sort of the um, mashup of, you know, the Gothic and the suburban, uh, you know, sort of aesthetics here, but like just thinking about like, 1990 is that, you know, between the, uh, you know, sort of feathered hair and like, you know, uh, all of that. And like the nineties sort of grunge scene of like, you know, just the, just thinking of pop culture in general, it's, it's kind of a interesting sort of mix.
3: Well, interestingly, I mean, Tim Burton though, wouldn't, didn't dip into that. Did he? Uh, you know that sort of realism, that sort of that scene. I mean, did he he kind of switched from this to, um,
0: well, I mean, I there's ben the and and, you know,
3: that kind of thing, right?
0: I'm sorry, I over talked you a little. Sorry,
3: bit. he 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 kind of rolled out of sort of the realism into the animation and the stop motion and things like that pretty soon, pretty quickly, didn't he?
1: So no, I, don't, I, don't I think the, the
3: i think the
2: exception to that although it uh isn't the certainly 90s realism and i don't know that we could call it realism but um ed wood as a follow-up um right mm-hmm. if anybody's um not seen that go see it it's great um right. and so that's set in the 50s um and is heightened like this is but it's you know maybe the only one of his movies to be not really a fantasy at all Mm -hmm. um they're the only one well big eyes recently i guess wasn't either but you know i guess they're the two that are just like period pieces right um and they have sort of the goofy heightened realism aspects Mm -hmm. of it but um
3: but i guess you could
2: see that as being a more realistic story
3: Um, yeah well, I would also, you know, to bring it back to what we were talking about, the neighborhood, the suburbia, where it's where it's set. Um, it is. In a sense, if you're looking at, um, you know, the Gothic or anything like that, it's almost unrealistic, it's hyper like we were saying, hyper realistic so that um, we we find things that are very um, recognizable about these neighborhoods and we can see the 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 mashup of the times the the you know maybe 50s 60s through to the 80s but it's very unrealistic it's very sort of creepy and odd and unusual Mm -hmm. um and uh so i would say that you know i don't think anything about this obviously it's not like the gothic castle at the end of the road is any less odd or out of place than this neighborhood. They're sure. both in balance of being out of place or other place, if you will.
2: Right. Right. And then I guess that's the, where his sort of semi-autobiographical part comes in and where you kind of, you, Edward is su- You know, I guess meant to be as much a point of view as anybody else, right? In the movie, you know, you could very much identify with Edward, who finds this place as bizarre as people Mm -hmm. find him, right? Um, Just checking on if we have any uh,
4: questions
2: here.
0: I didn't see any questions. So um, Arthur brought up the the idea of you know suburban conformity, which we'll we'll have a couple images on the next slide. Uh, maybe that highlight that a little bit more. Cat, um, you were when you were talking about um, the actors, um, it made me so when I was out the re, the, the research I was doing on Wikipedia. Um, was uh, I, I, I sort of noted um, some of the actors who could have portrayed um, Edward um, or who were approached. Yeah. So apparently the studio wanted Tom Cruise. Um, and then also like Tom Hanks and Gary Oldman um, were mm-hmm. both approached and both turned down the role, apparently. Um, and just thinking about like what you were saying with regards to the portrayal there, like, I mean, I think all three of those have done... Um, you know, quite quite a bit of like different roles. Um, I mean, certainly, um, you know, Tom Hanks has certainly done a, a wide range, but I just don't see him doing this kind of role at all. Like, like there's almost uh, I don't know. Even even though you have these um, actors who maybe are good, are very good at like these character parts. Like, I just I just don't. I mean, of course, we don't have what they would have done with it. So it's easy for mm-hmm. me to say that, but I don't know any, any thoughts there on, on like maybe how this movie could have turned out um, and not I, necessarily in a good way.
3: <laughs> I think of that. Well, you know what? I think of that lineup. I think Gary Oldman could have pulled it off in his own way, but I read an article where he, he really did not understand the brief. He really did not understand the movie at all. And just a few moments into the film, I think even just past the first the credits or something, he said, "Oh, I get it now." Um, and so he had turned it down. And I I do think that he he would have brought something different to it, uh, but I think he could have pulled up, pulled that off. I really do. Um, but I think that what helped is I you know, I realized that johnny depp had the history of 21 jump street and that sort of thing behind him but as a film actor he didn't really have any baggage that he was bringing to the role and if anything yeah 21 jump street you know he was a character he was a teeny bopper heartthrob kind of a thing a very pretty person um i think though that it didn't hurt him because it was you know he's playing the um I guess if you're looking at the gothic he's playing the hero he's playing the 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 love interest if there is such a thing in this film um and so that didn't hurt his performance and um so i think that uh so that would have kind of gone against him with or if we looked at tom cruise or if we saw tom hanks in these roles they already had such a uh, a package behind them that you know uh, roles behind them that i think it would have made it a completely different feel to the yeah. to the film. So
2: yeah, it's hard to imagine Tom Hanks as anything other than the everyman. You know? Yeah. Like yeah. I and don't
1: know. It
2: maybe that's just because he's never done it and maybe we would wow. all be surprised if he had, and maybe that would have taken his career in a time like completely right. different direction. But um sure. that's just I feel like this is a level of uh eccentricity that mm-hmm. I don't know that doesn't seem like he has ever been a part of his mm-hmm. repertoire as far as I can tell. Um mm-hmm. and that's what I think Gary Oldman probably shares. Right. Um you know, I'm a big Gary Oldman fan, although I I do think that subtlety and smallness are very much a part of this performance and yeah. that would be my big question mark is right. Um, especially if he didn't necessarily understand the tone of it would be over playing it as something more monstrous than it needs to be Um, and getting the kind of sweetness and you know, the, the very little subtleties of, um, I don't know. um, Johnny Depp is one of those actors who will reference really random things that you wouldn't think of, like, you know, the Tin Man as an inspiration for Ed Wood, like, okay, but it works. And, um, you know, things in here were referenced, like, you know, looks that your dogs make. Um, Like what kind of, what's the nicest dog you've ever had? And that's the, the facial expression he wants to evoke. And that's the kind of, you know, those little things, those little touches I think are really keep the, the, performance very small and very light that plays against the bigness of the hair and the makeup and the world and everything around it is huge. And he's just very small within that. Um, So I think it was the right call. I'm glad it went the way that it did.
3: And I did I did read that that is what the screenwriter thought of. And she communicated that I, I can't remember now if she told it to him beforehand or not. But it was that she was envisioning her favorite and her best and most gentlest dog. And that was the the expression and the eyes and just what can I do for you kind of expression coming through that, that he really captured. And again, you know, would that have come through with those other actors? I think, I think Johnny Depp was a, a, you know, he really, the way he portrayed um, Edward shaped the movie profoundly. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Oh yeah, for sure. And I mean, so there's um, a few comments around uh, Tom Hanks in in particular, Arthur saying, um, you know, he had a, that Hanks had a very goofy quality, um, you know, as in and Buddies that might have worked. Um, I I wonder though, if. Is Edward goofy? if, If the goofiness and the sincerity would work at the same time, like, because those are almost too competing. Because I think there is, I, I do think there is a goofiness to Edward, in a sense, but it's there's an earnestness to it as well that mm-hmm. I think I, I, I would, I find it hard to think that Tom Hanks could have done both of those things. Um, and then um, Deborah's saying uh, Tom Hanks didn't really start branching out until Forrest Gump. I think that's right. I can't think of anything before that um, that would
3: did he do big before Forrest Gump? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I guess it depends I, I on what you
2: consider of, branching out.
3: I still, <laughs> still think oh, of both out, of those okay. as,
2: as every man, even Forrest Gump, you know, for all yeah. that he's different, mm-hmm. um, is still sort of boy next door. Um, you know, and I'm not saying clearly it, you know, requires talent and range to play that part. And, there are people that don't like Forrest Gump. I love Forrest Gump. Mm-hmm. so like nothing against Tom Hanks as an actor, but I don't know that I would put that in the same camp as this type of performance.
3: Yeah, and I wonder if if with Tom Hanks at that point in his career and as Curtis was saying, what he was known for. I don't know. You know, there are there are the funny moments when Edward, you know, has trouble with his hands and you know pokes the the water, the mattress, and stuff but none of them are knee slapping funny they're 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 not there there's always that tinge of awkwardness and oh no and you know uncomfortable there's an uncomfortable aspect to almost every comedic moment in -hmm. the film and i'm not sure that um tom hanks would have captured that because i think that um we'd be primed just to be laughing And, and and so not sure not sure
2: it, it, it's an interesting, it's hard to say without actually seeing their performance right. though, you know, who knows? Maybe yeah. I kind of feel like if one of them had done it, that could have been an entirely different. Not Tom <laughs> Cruise. Or agreed. Not Tom Cruise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was clearly the studio choice. Yeah, Yeah,
0: yeah. It, it was. And and Burton apparently put the kibosh on that pretty quickly. Um,
4: <clears throat>
0: so, all right. Well, I mean we talked about the every man. Is this every town? Um, where we are? Do we have is there a name for the town? Do they ever say like I don't no, remember. I don't think so. I mean, like there's no indication like there's no letters or anything that we I see can't
2: even there. think right. whether the cheerleading outfits have
3: names on them or anything. Right, it's
0: like high and, school or something. <laughs> like, I, yeah, or like I'm initials. Wondering,
3: I'm wondering though, the the um, the television station might have had some call oh, letters and I think they were they refer to them to something, hmm. the station,
4: Maybe.
3: I'd have to go back, we'd have to go back and but look even, at that even
4: the,
0: one. Yeah, even thinking about that interview, they're like, you know, how, how has it been going since you've been here in town? Like, it's, it's like very general, like, it's not.
3: Or he came from far away, you know, to come into town. Well, he came well, on the up the hill, <laughs> you
0: know? Like, that's the other thing, it's like, I, I threw in there, uh, the last question there, like, does nobody, like, until Peg, like, looks in her rear view mirror, there's literally nobody yeah. sees this, like, huge gothic rundown mansion, like, right. at the top of the hill. Like, he's part of the town, technically, I'm sure. And
3: do do the kids, I mean, because usually kids will have some sort of, a, you know, a superstition or, you know, the local go- uh, stories about the, the house on the hill. And I don't even think the kids, I mean, they I think they say he's from that creepy mansion on the hill or something like that, but they don't you know, come on, that's a prime, prime place for challenging your friends to go up and ring the doorbell, knock yep. on the door, steal something, throw a rock through the window, whatever. That's normal. That would be every town. But the yeah. fact, like you say, it's the elephant on the edge of town that nobody talks about. And mm-hmm. not because it doesn't seem like they're averse to it, or there's an aversion to it. It's like a, a, a blind spot. It's a total blind spot that's uh, that's there looming over them all and nobody sees it it's it's just not even there if this
2: were were doctor who it would be a perception filter there's like something it's right there and there's something blocking your ability to to compute
3: yeah there's no stories about the creepy guy who lives up there who builds things and and he's built this guy i mean you know there'd be stories if it was normal or if it was a, a, a normal treatment and
0: presumably, not even an awareness of of who might possibly yeah. live up there. Because, like, why would Peg go up there if she knew it was, like, a mad scientist male? Right. You know, like, what, I mean, I suppose they might buy makeup, too. Like, I, I don't know. But I and wouldn't she, think that that would be, like, her demographic, really. <laughs>
3: She was desperate. She was getting turned down by everybody. She had to make a sale, man. Those those yeah. uh, those pyramid schemes. And,
0: and <laughs> also, like
3: the pyramid scheme. I'm sorry. Go ahead.
0: Like, are there no other? Is this the only neighborhood in the city yeah. or the area? Like, because she well, should, like her patch. It's
3: her patch. <laughs> it's her her patch. patch. The Avon oh, people are pretty tight. It's her that's, territory. Yeah, and you like, can not in other people's territory. I think that that's part Fair of it, enough.
2: though, because in the TV broadcast. They say like, how are you enjoying town? Like this is clearly the local, their town has local television studios and broadcasts. So it's not even like this is from the neighboring city. No, Uh, it's This seems to be a self-contained little world here that has, you know, however many, you know, couple hundred or thousand Mm -hmm. people and yet an infrastructure to have, you know, a TV studio and a mall and, you know, all these sorts of things. And but it just kind way. of, yeah. is this a snow globe or like what's going on?
3: <laughs> and that's one of the things that very much makes it not Burbank or virtually anywhere else in Southern California. You do not have that sort of localized right. mentality. Just a side right. note there. Well, and that's why it feels more middle America. It's, you yeah. like small town yeah. America,
2: not so much suburb of a big city right. as much as, small town, any town kind of USA. Um, So um, Deborah Deborah, um, points out that Kim's granddaughter says that the mansion's haunted. So at least by the time of of two generations on or whatever, there are stories, Um, but maybe that's less true when Kim is a kid. It does seem to be more that it's just ignored, but maybe post Edward, having come and gone, there's some urban myth among the kids of the haunted mansion on the hill. There's some sort of awareness of that.
3: Yeah. And yes, we will get to the parallel to Kamazot's shortly, Arthur. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, I
1: know,
3: yeah. One thing, um, and this may be completely just out there, but one thing that made me laugh at the very end was I realized this tiny little girl in the bed, she looked like a disembodied head, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just this head in this giant bed. I don't know if it says anything, but just struck. Well, me. I, I
2: have a, I have a picture of it later on. I certainly was tickled by the just, her smallness within yeah. the bed like the kind sure. of you know that sort of what was that tv show where there was like you know a full-grown woman but the chair around her was enormous oh, and Billy they just Tomlin. made her look like the a little
3: Tomlin yeah made her look like care. a rag doll i think or something like that she had her little little kid i can almost right. remember her name she had a name yeah, yeah. well that's that's touching but on. that kind of bedtime story quality yeah. to it and I'm not sure. I, I I did read an article and it this was about the filmography, the cinematography and the the, the techniques that were used. And they did kind of cite this sort of Alice in Wonderland where you know, you go into the castle and everybody's tiny and minuscule compared to everything else. And then you come into suburbia and then the lower angles of the camera shots made everyone seem really to fill the space and fill the room, Mm -hmm. not in every Mm -hmm. shot, but you know, they were kind of comparing those things. And then you get back to the little girl and the giant bed and, you know, it it becomes another one of those sort of kind of pulling at our senses of- um, Well, even
2: in this shot here of the women (laughs) standing around. right. Um, it's the way it's shot below them. They look like are. Is this a child's perspective? They look really tall and kind of menacing, sort of right. hanging over you there. Um, right. So yeah, I think that that is. There seems to be a switch between the two different, the the gothic and the suburban. You know, sort right. of what's your place in these worlds? Sure. All right. Um, and I guess that's the last thing on this sort of slide that I threw in was um, this quote from uh, an essay by uh, Russell Potter about um, it's sort of about other things, but the one I pulled out here was the way that the fact that we can't really we can't place this in any specific time or place, and yet you could have easily done the full fairy tale version where it's clearly once upon a time where it's not set in this is very clearly modern america we can quibble right. over the specific decade um mm. but it's not completely removed from us and so his kind of point here is by having avon ladies and cd players and enough modern touches when there are satirical elements it doesn't allow us to say well that's happening in fairyland and it has no relation to to me, it sort of indicts the audience a little bit um, that if this is what suburbia is, then maybe this is the values that are sort of attached to it. All right.
0: So shall we see the comparison? Here we go. Of suburbias?
2: (laughs) We've been here before. We were just uh, talking about this kind of creepy Cold War era suburban neighborhood where all the children and all the men sort of have their, you know, their activities are done in unison. Everything is very kind of idyllic pastel colored, not at all creepy or, you know, uh, conformity is clearly uh, a value here.
3: But obviously, you know the main difference is in the the Wrinkle in Time and Camazots. The um, control is exuded from without, you know, and and with the suburban Gothic themes, the control is is from within. Mm. It's everyone um, conforming to an image or or a desired uh, image to to be like, to be as assimilated as possible for their own comfort, for their own sense of belonging um and not out of any outward threat at least that's usually what it is it, there's the driving force from within not not the force from without kind of thing mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. everybody to conform and you know you see that with um how it's all laid out and the 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 pastel themes and and everyone sort of behaving in the same way but that shot right there um when uh the gals all the the women folk have been chatting like little you know chickens on the corner and <laughs> and there is it's like nothing is going to stop them from gossiping except when their husbands are coming home all at the same time driving into the neighborhood entering their their driveways and then suddenly they disperse like that's the that's the call but what made me laugh though was remembering as a kid when the street come on that's when you're supposed to go home so <laughs> So there is kind of you know there's something that kind of rings true to that as much as we may not like it to ring true um but but there is sort of it it did make me laugh it did make me laugh so
2: well the one thing i'll say for this unnamed suburbia um that the the bogs live in is that at least their houses are different colors right um so there are little touches of individuality um, that kamazots does not have right. and um, maybe that's the difference between an external sort of imprisonment of thought versus right. this internal one which is highly you know conformative and everything but, uh-huh. um, but it's still coming from individual human beings and right. can, can they totally they're not going to do everything exactly the same. And I, don't, I think doing things, very subtle things, slightly different from each other, maybe allows them to think of themselves as sort of right. individualistic. Like I'll paint my house fluorescent green and that'll <laughs> kind of, you know, shock the neighbors, like not kind of realizing sure. it, it's only a it's only a slight difference. It's nothing that radical. But and well, most think, of the. Go ahead.
0: Sorry. I was going to say most of these colors would get you kicked out of any respectable oh, yeah. homeowners association. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, yeah.
1: Sorry. Go
0: ahead. Jen.
1: I,
3: well, I, w- I was going to say, I think that, um, that we're all still talking about um, the visual representation of, of this neighborhood. Um, once we get into the individual characters and the, the people on the street, they do seem to conform to. Um, you know similar um values goals that kind of thing but they are they are individuals um Mm -hmm. but one thing that did make me laugh was at the very beginning when peg is is you know doing her avon calling there's one shot of her walking up to a door and the sidewalk that she's on going through somebody's yard up to that It's very crooked it's like it follows the house and then it jigs out and she stays very precisely in the center of that little sidewalk all the way up to the to the door so it's like this even the little deviations and curves you stay right on the sidewalk you do exactly you know right in the center and um it just it kind of i didn't know if that was intentional or not but that's kind of the message i got from that little Mm. just that little moment so yeah And uh, Devorah also
2: says, um, "Is that one reason to maybe give a little admiration or credence to Esmeralda, um, who is certainly, for whatever else she is, she's nothing like anybody else in the neighborhood, and at least she's sort of bucking these sort of, you know, very
3: Esmeralda is the the, the sex the of <laughs> yeah, okay." Yeah. Wasn't Bewitched? Wasn't her mom's name Esmeralda? Was it? I and the, the makeup was so it, it looked like her. It. I mean, I think that was her name. Now I'm gonna have to Google somebody. Google it. I think that was her name because her makeup so looked like you know maybe toned down a little bit. Uh, but with the the cat eye and the you know and that that Arthur, time frame.
0: Arthur says it was in Endora.
3: And Dora. Okay. Oh, maybe it was somebody else, a cousin or something. It just sounded, it was the E give me that please. Um, but it it did, she, she did evoke to me that, that image of, of her. Oh, there is an Esmeralda. She's the maid. Oh, okay. The
2: maid. I don't know what to do with that, but I don't know what to do with either. But anyway, all Um, right.
0: On on the topic of individuality and, and conformity though, too, I think, um, the other thing that sort of strikes me is uh, the idea that even, even within the suburban community, um, you know, which has its certain amount of privilege and, and uh, within a range is, you know, probably everyone is, is around the same range of well-off, but then you have um, Anthony and Michael Hall, I can't think of his character's name, his, his father, who's, seems to be very much more well off than everyone else, right? Like Mm -hmm. that's the implication is that their family is, is better off. But, um, you know, seeing that one is a hardship because you have Peg out there kind of, you know, trying to do her Avon lady thing and not being extremely successful at it, at least as far as we can see. Um, but the idea that, I mean, you know, and, and I don't mean to imply that like, like maybe she wants to do that. I don't actually know if they're doing that because, they need the money or whatever, but just that idea that, um, you know, also uh, 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 Mr. Boggs, whatever his name is, uh, Alan Arkin there, uh, you know, is sort of uh, signaling the virtue of, um, you know, going out and getting, you know, working for your own car to, um, you know. um, Jim. Jim, there, thank you. Man, I'm doing terrible with character names Ah! tonight. But uh, yeah, just just that idea of like you know there there definitely is a um, you know there's the individualism, but there's also the the uh, disparity between the incomes and and the you, you know um, they even blame um, you know when when uh, they think Edward was going to steal you know the items right. Um, you know, Peg's like, oh, it's it's because I said we would figure out a way to get the money, and you know, there's maybe jealousy and, and envy there, and and you know, just kind of that idea of like, you know, trying to go out and do your own thing. But of course, because Edward doesn't have the same values as everyone, he does it differently, and he doesn't quite know what it. And, and you know, the whole. Um, the ethical discussion around the table just reminds me of um, the offices episode on ethics where (laughs) Oscar gets really mad and is like, no, it's, it's not just like corporate policy of like what we should and shouldn't do. It's like an actual real world discussion about, you know, how should I, but you, but you totally get that sense from, from Bill. Thank you. Or uh, thank you, Deborah. Um, uh, You know, the father saying like, there's, you know, this is the thing that you should do, you know, here's the four choices, which is the correct one. And it's like, there's no opportunity for like nuance or, you know, circumstances or mitigating, you know, whatever. It's just, no, this is the right thing. And, you know, you should take the money to the police. There should never be any other time where, you know, you might spend it on your family or do something different than, you know, what the sort of prescribed uh, societal answer to this ethical question is.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, Right. And the, and then lessons aren't based on teaching, like really working through ethics or morality, it's the kid is, you know, the little brother is like, you dope, everybody knows you're supposed to do this. So it's the right thing because everybody knows it. Mm -hmm. We don't need to get into why it's maybe better or worse than other decisions. Morality is based on this sort of social code of what, like it's it's true because I tell you so. So like just do it because I said so. And that's sort of as far as it goes.
3: Yeah, if we think back, though, that's that's how Edward learned anything about engaging with people was the inventor was reading to him out of an etiquette book. Right. Uh, And and so, you know, you get that that here's and here's something, though, that that I think that we need to remember is. And don't forget your point, Curtis, because you're laughing is um, Edward is not human. He really isn't and people are expecting him like the kid don't you everybody knows that he's he 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 really genuinely i mean he has the the capacity to love or to you know to admire um uh cam and 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 have that sort of love thing but but fully human maybe that's a discussion we need to have in a few minutes but you know he's not so these things don't ring true for him um Automatically, so go ahead, Curtis. Sorry, you're going to.
0: No, I, well, and I love that they do contrast ethics with etiquette, right? Yeah. Because what? Right. Because etiquette is totally right. social, you know, conformity and you know convention. Right. Um, and I love too, because like the other thing is that you know the inventor he gets bored of it. He's like, yeah, let's stop writing this. This was boring. So like, <laughs> even even any uh, even if etiquette might have sort of you know subliminally or like through osmosis given mm-hmm. edward some kind of ethical structure at least to say like okay here are the things you should do i don't know why we're supposed to do these things but mm-hmm. at least these are the right things to do mm-hmm. <laughs> like his, the inventor just gets bored with trying to teach him that it's just like let's read poetry and some poetry fun. let's go read some poetry instead
3: but um, interestingly that 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 conversation around the table, Edward stuck to his opinion. He he didn't change his opinion. um, Whether you would say, you know, it's right or not or or whatever. He had his, he had his opinion that he stuck to. So he's not a complete blank slate that can be manipulated. Right.
0: Right. Yeah. And, and the opinion is that he would spend it on his family. Right. Which he lost. He lost his family, like be the only family he ever had. But also in contrast, the only example he's ever had was the inventor who was trying to help him, right? Who was doing what he did until literally his dying breath to try to help Edward. And so, like, I think whatever we might say about the correctness of the ethical, you know, conundrum as put by Bill you know, I think Edward certainly learned ethics, even if it was never like, uh, you know, strict, this is what you should do. And here's why you should do it. Or everyone knows that you should do this. So you should do it. Um, Edward certainly learns that, like, you know, to him, it seems, you know, family is everything that they're, they're the ones who take care of you. And that seems true, I think, throughout, I was, I almost said, for the most part, I don't think he deviates at all, at least, I, that I, can I think even, of in his yeah, in his actions. I would,
3: I would even say, and this and this carries us through to the very end, so maybe I'm overstepping, but everything about him is motivated and satisfied by familial or even romantic love confirmation of that relationship because he lives the rest of his what, perhaps eternal life. He's he keeps functioning, he keeps living, he doesn't age, but he's presumably happy and satisfied because he received affirmation of love from, from Kim. Um, Mm -hmm. He he did receive the familial and care from, from Peg. She was unconditional and loving, but for some reason that didn't trigger the same satisfaction. And once that was satisfied, he, it was, it was full. And as you say, Curtis, he never deviated. All of his actions were driven by that sense. Never deviate.
2: And and he confirms later. You know, they kind of there's the one bit where the psychologist is sort of saying, "Well, he wasn't exposed to the world. You know, like this neglected no. child, so he doesn't have the framework to tell right from wrong. Oh, he'll be fine." Um, but um, <laughs> when when Kim asks, um, uh, or, or she presumes that y- you didn't know it was Jim's house. Like we tricked right. you into. Yeah robbing Jim's house. And he says, I knew I, y- you asked me to. So kind right. of again saying he knows, he knew it was wrong. So he can tell the right. difference. Um, right. But that's not that the rightness or wrongness of it. Wasn't his framework. His, his framework right. was responding to the request uh. of somebody he loves. Right.
0: I don't know that I would say he knew that it was wrong. I think, he has a completely different calculation of what is right and wrong.
2: Well, everyone. and maybe that's more what I was getting at. Sure.
0: Yeah. Like it's, it's wrong in terms of what everyone in the suburban community would think is wrong, but I, mm-hmm. I don't think um, uh, there's a quote that I'm trying to think of. I can't even remember where, where it is. Um, uh, I'm going to, I would butcher it if I tried it, but basically the idea of what I might've done you know, what I did might have been, um, ineffective or, or, you know, not, not the right thing from a sort of factual perspective, but that doesn't, I'm not convinced that it was the wrong thing to do. And like, right. I kind of get that idea that, that, that would be his answer if he were more wordy uh, about it. Um, that's my interpretation anyway.
3: hmm It's interesting, um, Arthur it is Arthur yeah is is kind of calling um Edward he's identifying him as an innocent and he's also relating it to sort of that sort of in ethical instinct that you find in Paralandra which is the um uh Lewis book right Lewis, mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis wrote that yeah, yeah. The, um yeah. and and um and so I guess his um his stake in the ground his his marker is um all about that feeling of love that family love um that kind of thing and that's what he doesn't deviate from but do you um do we agree i mean is edward depicted as an innocent i mean that that's interesting um is are, are you a full character if if you are an innocent and um and and what do you think
2: i mean i guess in the most literal sense he qualifies in the way of lack of experience
1: Mm -hmm. um
2: just maybe the by virtue of his non-exposure to anything outside his creator and the house that he was brought up Mm -hmm. in and the the plants that he was able to you know the the topiary that he created um in the garden that seems to have been the sum total of his experience for however right. long. So I guess like if like we innocent. take innocent in a very literal sense, I feel like certainly he qualifies there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I agree.
3: I shouldn't lose power, you all, but um there's a huge, massive dust storm blowing in as we get during this time of year. So outside it looks like dirt. Uh, so I should be okay, but I may. We usually don't <laughs> lose power where we are, so just you know, okay. we don't get
2: surprised.
3: Dirt. Yeah, it's a bad one. All right, go ahead.
2: Um, <laughs> I, I have kind of an sort of related question, and kind of between these two slides, we can you can go or we can go back. Which well, just because you mentioned
0: the topiary, so I
2: well, sure. That, uh, I, I guess yeah. so far, I feel like maybe we're not saying that this suburban neighborhood is quite as bad as Camazot's um but there seems to be the sense of um you know gothic castle Edward the inventor are good and kind of you know conformity and cookie cutter suburbia is more negative I guess I want to poke at that a little bit is that as consistently true as it appears. Maybe it is. Um, One of the things that um, I definitely noticed this time was we can use the phrase cookie cutter houses and neighborhoods um, and yet what is in the inventor's mansion but a literal cookie cutter machine. Um, And, you know, Edward himself is made out of this machinery and has a a little cookie heart. Um, In fact, there's an interesting cookie you know, motif throughout this movie. Because when you're talking about the ethical <laughs> the ethical debates, there's that other conversation around the dinner table where the, the father says you you can't buy things with cookies and Jim's like that that's true sir. You're right. Like good point. And like that you know, again this empty sort of morality, but like the cookies sort of being a link between the two worlds there. Um I don't know, like is it as clean cut as gothic and weird and eccentric, good, normal sort of middle American suburbia bad, or is there some bleed over between the two? Well,
3: whether it's meant to be or not, I just, I really had to hang up with the whole inventor thing because number one, why are you messing around making this, this person, this human with feelings and emotions and, and why are you even dabbling that in the you know in that in the first place which is a very (laughs) typical gothic thing you know the crazy inventor of the castle that is supposed to be the bad guy right um and so i do question that i do wonder about that and then like i was telling you earlier why the heck given these scissor hands and leave that to be the last thing you do for the poor guy where where is that? And and it was very interesting. An article we read was um, citing that um, um, if you've ever seen those diagrams of the human body and they um, enlarge portions of it or or shrink portions of the body to to show how much sensory um, there is in different regions and the hands are enormous. They're huge because they're like a, one of our main. A tactile sensing kinds of areas of actual nerve endings so maybe it's too difficult maybe it was difficult for the inventor it's the last thing he got to i don't know but still to leave it to be the last thing that he gives him just seems cruel it seems mm-hmm. twisted and that whole idea with the inventor creating something for his own pleasure his own desire thinking maybe he's doing something nice for this thing he's creating but you know that's a hang up i'll 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 have right from the start right from the get go sure, sure. like well and that is that come from
2: that is well that's that comes from frankenstein i think that's yeah. the kind of um right. ethical debate in that Just like, because you certain, can change um, the book is dude like what did you create me for just to yeah, exactly. decide <laughs> well that was a mistake and, and abandon me to the world um and i think even though the inventor seems like a sweet enough guy, I think you could certainly ask that same question of him.
3: Yeah. The hubris yeah. involved, you know, so.
0: Well, and I mean, okay. So a couple things. So first of all, like if you could just get mail order hands anytime, like <laughs> why would, why would you wait till the end? I agree. And it seems more complicated to create like a set of working scissor hands you know, to place there than just, you know, I mean, he's already done like the legs and torso and arms and head and all of the other stuff. Like our hands that much harder. I don't know. I mean, I've never done it. So I guess I can't, really say. <laughs> um, but that, the, that was the sort of thing I was thinking. I, I, I was thinking along the same line, Sharon, like, like yeah. why, like why leave the hands to last and why replace it with such a weird, complex, you know, potentially yeah. dangerous Thing like scissor hands, um, mm. and these are the—I mean, those are the types of questions, of course, that Cat always gets annoyed at me for asking, you know, about Doctor Who and stuff, because it's like you just—you just have to take it. That's exactly. that. You we, have to suspend disbelief. The, the we it. don't, except in in a few flashbacks, we don't get the inventor, so we can't like actually know right. what his thought process. Mm. Is.
3: However, however, I would I would say that um the hands are a big deal so sorry i got to shut that off so um i should I know that, that sound <laughs> sorry people i, I was um, afraid to look
0: i thought it was for me <laughs> <laughs>
3: It was me forgetting to close it before we started, but i mean the the hands are so central, let's face it, it is the thing that makes Edward and the whole movie what it is, so I mean you do have to i, I think it's I think it's okay to ask, whereas you know asking questions like, "What does Edward eat or "How does he go to the bathroom or any of those things clearly, I'm thinking I'm thinking oh, yeah. those kind of think of that second one I don't think I mean really. The um, but procedure. I mean, the, all that leather, all the getup he's in—that seems like his actual skin. It actually contains him. It's all strapped mm. in. I don't mm. know that he could actually live without that skin. It's almost like mm. a a Dune still suit or something. Um, mm. uh, so, so I, I, I honestly don't think. And because he, uh, because in this, at the, the frame tale at the end of the story, it shows him still in his youthful visage. He hasn't aged. So I'm thinking that he is not, like. He does not have the the full complete body functions like a human would, um so we can kind of suspend those kinds of questions about what he eats and how he you know does his respirates and all those things um but Although
2: i I want to say I think he eats cookies, but
3: um <laughs> well, yeah, they have the mechanism but there.
2: the real answer is I don't think he has to eat
3: it yeah seems
2: I to me I that that's yeah. not you know a thing that is necessary for him
3: right so i mean those kinds of factual things we can we can kind of remove from needing to tick tick the box but the hands the hands that you know it's important and so to me it just it just really makes me question the inventor and and i think that i think that's okay to do i think mm-hmm. as i um i think that um not knowing which you know castle good neighborhood bad castle bad neighborhood good i don't think we're supposed to choose one or the other i think that they are in um sort of you know edging each other out they're they're creating some some dynamic feelings there that that kind of takes it out of your standard tropes your standard mm-hmm. uh, cookie cutter kind of trope cookie cutter kind of tropes um, mm-hmm. which 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 makes it you know kind of special makes it interesting mm-hmm.
2: Well, and you'll notice to highlight the importance of hands that in front of the mansion there, it's a hand is the yeah. central topiary kind of in the little stone uh, yeah. fountain there. It's a um,
0: and I mean, the other thing that I would say about that is what about the failed experiments? Because yeah. when Ona Ryder finds a random <laughs> scissor hand uh, just lying there. Does that what does that imply about? Maybe and it did,
3: it did show prior. the little, did show the little prototype figures and and mm. sort of little automaton type of sure. you know, like guys. Yeah, so it was, was sort some... of
2: journalist flipping the pages. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah.
3: Oh, so, one thing I have to ask you in the castle. I think it was during the cookie cutter scene. Those big round vat kind of things with all the 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 um you know the the bands on it and stuff like that. I totally ha- was. It was a flash to Violet Beauregard blown up as a blueberry in Willy Wonka. I could not get that visage out of that image out of my head. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know if that was intentional or not, but boy, that was her, her belt, you know, in the, in the one with Gene Wilder and everything. Mm -hmm. Totally cracked me up. Sorry, go ahead. Well, we
2: know, we know that's an important text for Tim Burton, right? Um, uh, Certainly later in his career, but probably my guess would be that those references are there earlier too. And the idea of, again, small little town with this weird eccentric on the hill who has factories making who knows what. So it's a similar sort of setup between
3: the two. Sorry, Curtis, I interrupted you with my violet violet, blueberry imagery. What were you going to say? I'm sorry. Uh,
0: I don't. So, well, on the topic of hands, Arthur's like suggesting other names for the character in the movie, uh, Edward meat hands, finger hands, normal hands. Uh, I mean, Edward stump hands, like, you know, like did, did he need something there? Like, uh, so I guess the, I mean, uh, yes, he needed hands of some kind, but like the point is like, why not just give him normal hands? I think the other piece of the conversation though, is that like, yes, obviously these are, tricky to use and dangerous to use at times, you know um, you see the cuts all over his face and obviously he unintentionally hurts um, the people he loves. And so that's not good, but also he creates very beautiful things and has, I mean, he, he does have a certain amount of dexterity with the hands given all of the artwork, you know, that he is able to make and, you know, cutting hair and not like, You know, hurting people, um, you know, while doing it. So that's the flip side of it, right? Like these are very awkward and dangerous Mm -hmm. tools, but can also be used to make very beautiful things. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is part of the dichotomy of the gothic horror and the, uh, you know, beautiful or at least beautiful looking uh, suburbia. Mm -hmm. And I mean, they're in that picture there, even of. The, the castle mansion, whatever we want to call it, you know, before it gets all run down. Like presumably he does a lot. Of, I mean, certainly we know he's doing the bushes there. Right. Like, and so is this like, you know, his dad in return? what do you, whatever we call him, you know, is he like out there doing, you know, planting the flowers, like alongside while Edwards, you know, carving the bushes, like, mm. Maybe you know they did Saturday gardening together or something,
2: well, and there's the link between the two of them as creators, you know as, mm-hmm. you, that that's a seems to be a trait passed on you know from father to son is to make things
3: mm-hmm. um, didn't the psychologist say he's a highly imaginative right son or something mm-hmm. like that right right
2: and in the in the inventor's defense. I feel like the instinct with these sort of, whether it's the Tin Man or whatever, it's usually like the metal man who lacks a heart, whereas mm-hmm. the inventor leads with the heart. Like that's, it's the, the again, the cookie, and you know, the over the machine, yeah. it gives him the idea. So it's kind of like, I, I'd rather he leave the hands for last than leave the heart for last, you know, mm-hmm. in a sense, like, it, it, I don't know symbolically the idea to me is that first he gave him life and a personality wow. and then he saved the the what he thought of as the more sort of menial things for the end, not you know intending to have his work left unfinished and right. maybe not not realizing the difficulty he'd leave him in if he didn't finish
4: mm-hmm. um mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, can you imagine Edward Scissorhands, no heart, you know, coming down, ravaging the neighborhood, killing everything in sight? Right, right. (laughs) He has no heart. Now, here, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, The lighting, and I guess in the in where I was watching the film again um, just recently in my living room, when the inventor is reading to him out of first the etiquette book and then the poetry, and um, he's just sitting there. Are his legs like not attached yet? He's just sort of a torso and a head yeah. and the legs are like sideways because they're not even done yet.
2: Right. So he's like
3: from okay. here up.
2: He's that's all there okay. is. And he's sort of sitting on a table.
3: All right. So we have the idea then the inventor was investing in his, his emotional development as much as he was in the physical development. Of him. Okay. Right. okay. Right. I still think it's, I still, I still think. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I have to suspend but i think it does speak to something that i had wanted to talk about and it may come up later in the slide and i think that arthur might have commented something you know you know if we look at this i mean we're talking about gothic because that's most obvious what it is but those of us who have been indoctrinated so heavily with mythgard and signum we always think fairy and you know Mm -hmm. the other and going through doorways and gateways Eating the food of the other place, all those kinds of things, Um, and there's very much doorways and and gateways and portals in this. Um, You know, normally the creepy, scary, macabre thing is fairy. That's the other. But um, are we? Can we also then look at it the other way and see that this suburbia for for Edward? Is actually fairy. He's being lured in by the queen Peg, um, you know, taken in, uh, l- taken out of his normal world, and uh, brought into his that the the alternative fairy. So it kind of works both ways again, um, which makes this 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 film interesting.
2: Yeah, I think that's a fabulous reading of this as right. you know Edward as Tamlin. Um, yeah, he's the one from. He's from his world, which is right. normal to him and makes sense and is what he knows. He's drawn into this perilous realm by this kind of queen of this other realm, like you said. He's given food and drink, um which you know you should never ever right. accept when it's offered to you um and it's ambrosia, of course, you know <laughs> the food of the gods, it's the, like fairy food yeah um he falls in love with this beautiful princess and then he's you know his life and safety are threatened by
3: these this horde of monsters and then and he, he goes back, back again <laughs> right and he's almost he's almost seduced by one of the right. the creatures should we say right right by this sort of temptress um,
1: incubus yeah and,
2: right? then, thucubus, and then Not incubus succubus. right and then he and then he he went there and he goes back again um, I really like that reading. I think that's really fun, right? Good job, Sharon, write that paper. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know anything else about I mean, I I feel like it's somewhat self explanatory. Once you point it out, you can kind of see all the, the little parallels and stuff. Is there any other sort of inverted
3: fairy elements? Um, well, I think that the, the people who come after him are only satisfied when they think that he's dead.
4: He's mm -hmm. not dead,
3: but they think that he's dead and they have a token, his hand of that death and they're, and they're immediately satisfied. Again, it's, it's the, uh, uh, suspending your disbelief. You know, how can that be enough? There's no investigation. They don't seem to care one bit for the dead kid on the ground, (laughs) you know, um, maybe they all knew he was a bad seed or whatever but again there's that there's that very otherworldly sense about how uh, how they have you know aesthetics and what they what they value and so yeah
2: right um yeah Thanks. it just makes me think of the end of beauty and the beast um you know i mean in general certainly this movie evokes that but the disney version specifically like jim is very much you know he's the Gaston figure um and Yeah, he can whip up the crowd into a mob (laughs) frenzy, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's beloved by his community. Right. And nobody really mourns him when he goes. You know, there's a sense that he's not, he's maybe a monster to them as well in a way.
4: Mm
3: -hmm. And, you know, Edward is left like those who do survive. Their trip to ferry, they're left with a longing that's mm-hmm. never satisfied um, that they live with, that they dream of. You know, they that forever. Um, he he lives and dreams with his uh, dreams of his his memory of Kim and um, and uh, tries to recapture that on the other side of, of of the wall as as best he can.
2: Recapture it through his artwork.
3: Yeah, you know, it's very Tolkien esque. <laughs> you know,
2: making. Yeah beautiful things inspired by this other realm, which you're
3: sort of not allowed access to. Right, right. And and it's the whole, you know, and I think you may have already said this, the idea that crossing crossing that line, it's not gonna go well. There's no scenario in which it will go well. It's going to go bad because <laughs> you don't belong there. So, All Right also i mean one thing that's interesting is that um edward doesn't speak much i think i've read a few articles about um uh the character and i think there's only like 150 160 words that he says through the whole movie right and words Yeah. yeah and in some ways you know that's that's another element of of fairy is there's you know um communication breakdown it's hard there's almost a a language or not knowing uh the the precise form and etiquette but also the language of the realm that you're in so there's there's kind of you know there's kind of that too i was Mm -hmm. thinking might be another element so
2: well that's another reason i think johnny depp was suited for this um evoking the kind of silent era Mm -hmm. Um, you know there's another movie that he did called benny and june where it's a character that just lives his life like charlie chaplin um so i think that as an influence you know the idea that it's mostly a silent performance Mm -hmm. there's very few actual lines that he Mm -hmm. has um so you want someone who can do the the physical acting without the benefit of a lot of dialogue
3: right and it's very simple for edward going into this other world to misstep to not do something right as we see in in typical uh fairy uh stories the you know going into fairy it's very simple it's very easy to to break a law break a rule take a misstep and not even realize it so there's that as well
2: Um, did we skip over a yeah, slide or two on
0: Just because we were talking about fairy, I, I yeah. went to that. Um, sure. Which I mean, you know, there's fairy you know, stuff on here oh, too, but
1: this is, girl. I think, yeah,
0: she,
2: yeah, more general. The little girl in the, in the giant bed. Oh yeah. <laughs> another somebody else pointed out that again with the timelessness. So if if we assume based on like the CD players that the movie is set in. The 80s or 90s then this would be like the yeah. far future right. <laughs> because she's old now and yet wow. we're in some sort of victorian fairy tale here where she yeah. like has her little bun and her knitting and you know the child in this you know you, you know enormous ornate bed um again it's like we've looped back around into um we're, we're this is not futurism we're evoking in any sense here.
0: No, there, I mean there's almost a stasis to it, um, which is interesting. So like almost implying that the society doesn't age in the same way that
2: mm, Edward, Edward does. Doesn't. Yeah, yeah.
0: There might be more that could be said about that. I don't know.
3: Well, that's another, that could be another um, of the fairy tropes of of time not being the same in one place to another, you know? Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, but I I think in this case, it's it's that neither time
3: really
0: changes. Right. I mean, the people get older and die and whatever, but like the society itself seems to, I mean, it, go, going by the very limited view that we have of, you know, the wallpaper and bed and, and stuff. Um, and I think we get like one shot where we can kind of see out the window with right. like the snow. And,
3: and she and, moves across the room with the fireplace. Yeah.
0: But like, there's nothing there to hint that like,
3: yeah.
0: it's a different decade. <laughs> even other I than mean. her age itself. Um mm-hmm.
2: Well, and and with the kind of mid-century modern architecture and design, that feels more kind of the Mm -hmm. retrofuturism of Kim's youth feels more Mm -hmm. contemporary and futuristic than even this Mm -hmm. sort of little Edwardian bedroom. Mm -hmm. Um, Speaking of the snow, uh, I did want to throw in a a note here about these just-so stories. Another term, you know, the the pourquoi, you know, the origin myth, why? How did we get something? Um, and I like the idea of this is you know, just like you know, Rudyard Kipling will write about how did the leopard get his spots, it's how where does snow come from? Um this is sort of a little nature myth about how the nature of snow. Um and again, it's like, okay. Is it significant because this is set in Florida or California where snow doesn't happen? Or is this, you know, the origin of snow across the world? Maybe there was no snow anywhere. Um, You know, just like there was supposed to not be rain before the flood. And then after the flood, there was rain. Now it's sort of like there was no snow. And then Edward came, and now we have snow. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's another kind of genre that they're playing with here. Yeah,
3: well, um, it's also, I would say it is a genre, but it also is a, um, it's a way to connect or if you, okay, if you think about it, if there wasn't snow, we would not know what Edward was up to. Kim would not know what Edward was up to. She wouldn't know that he's still there. He would disappear effectively. But because the snow returns, mm-hmm. she knows that he's still there. So mm-hmm. um, it does touch on on the like you say, the the origin story, the pourquois stories. Um, and and it is a vehicle in that respect, but it but it 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 does allow for Kim to know that he is still alive that he is still there she still has Mm -hmm. a connection with him and she knows that when he is creating his ice sculptures he is um most likely remembering her and creating a sculpture of her um Mm -hmm. so there's that's that's a tie-in i think that's that's maybe a mechanism for for the uh for the snow um and it gives her a chance to tell the story right Right there's
2: there's narrative reasons for it yeah. it's you know um i and i think that's a really lovely kind of dovetail moment at the end where mm-hmm. you realize the connection between the snow and its very personal meaning to the characters mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. you kind of have forgotten by the end that that's the original question of the movie is grandma where does snow come from um mm-hmm. and so when you kind of return to that at the end kind of realizing this has all been an explanation, not just for where it comes from, but what it means. And it's sort of symbolic and emotional significance. It's kind of a nice, uh, it's a very satisfying kind of circle there. Right.
3: Right. Sure.
0: And we see, we get confirmation as the viewers that Edward actually is up there doing the snow. Um, but there's no, I mean, I'm sure, you know, Uh, Winona Ryder believes that, you know, that's where the snow is coming from. Um, And, you know, a child in bed listening to a story, she has no idea if her grandmother's making this story up or not. And, you know, will she continue to believe it? Uh, It doesn't matter if she does. I don't know. But like, I kind of wonder, like if we, if we had never got that like last shot of Edward there at the hole in the roof, you know, with the ice sculpture, like, would we would we believe that this story like actually happened to her, or would this just be a made up story, you know, I, by a grandmother telling her grandkid?
3: I do think there could be question uh, that could be a question, but it was set uh, at least a portion of the the time frame was set at Christmas.
4: Mm-hmm
3: barely wearing a jacket they you know people are out in the middle of the night Mm -hmm. barely wearing clothes they clearly stated it does not snow here right um so i mean so the fact that there is snow right there yes that's part of kim the grandmother's story to the little girl saying oh it never snowed here until edward came along and now when it snows we know he's up there but
0: but that's the but frame of the story. Like it's
3: right, but we don't just have her word for it. We have the depiction of that area. It is. It's um, Christmas, middle of you know late December. The dad's up on the roof in shirt sleeves, throwing his roll of fake snow down the front. It's so. I'm. I'm going to say that I think without it, we might question whether it is. But I don't. I, I think. I think there's enough there to. To say no, it doesn't snow here. We've been—it's been communicated to us that this area does not get snow. Therefore, it's not a um, a tall tale to explain why there's snow. I, that's my take. That's what I would take from that.
0: Except that that's all done in the context of a frame. And again, we get the one last moment that shows us the frame is telling a true story.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: But outside right. of that, like to the girl, the girl doesn't know. If her grandmother, that so I, I'm just I'm just trying to I'm just trying to say right right
2: the, the final scenario of Edward in the castle with snow coming out the roof is the right. only thing that exists outside the frame other right. than the grandmother and the granddaughter so right so without that you could just do it as this is a bedtime story yeah um yeah. and that seems to be the one outside indication that um that it is it has primary truth outside of the tale that she's telling Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um yeah
0: yeah and maybe that doesn't matter i was just
3: Mm -hmm. and we are not it's
0: interesting it's an interesting decision to give that confirmation to the
3: right and we're not Um, supposed to question where he's getting his big old blocks of ice
0: no no
3: the, another invention his of father, a, a perpetual yeah. ice making machine yeah, yeah he father, set up yeah. automated
2: deliveries before yeah. he died don't worry about it yeah. <laughs> every every year he gets big trucks full of ice yeah. blocks um, yeah Amazon um, so some other <laughs> Got another Amazon. one I had up here was um. Uh Struhlpita, which is one of my favorite um creepy German stories. Um, they got, they got weird Famous, ones. famous from uh the office. Uh this is what Dwight reads to the <laughs> kids on Bringing your daughter to work day. Um and uh and, and the doctor reads it too. There's an in the most recent series of Doctor Who oh, when they're oh. in uh the Regency. It's actually anachronistic because they're in a time period where uh, he has a book that shouldn't have been written yet. But right. to the little Regency street urchins, he reads Peter. Um, And it's all cautionary tales about how, well, there's Stru Peter here who looks Edward Scissorhands like with his, it, it, you know, it's kind of about what a slovenly unkempt child he is with his bushy hair and uncut fingernails. Um, but then there's also, um, there's also a scissor man within those stories who Mm -hmm. will come and cut your thumb off
3: if you suck it.
2: Yeah. Um, so all this kind of scary scissor imagery to kind of make sure that kids are, um, paying attention. Other than the imagery, I'm not sure what to connect, what to connect it to. Like, is there any sense of a cautionary tale in this story? like is this a story to warn kids of anything, um, or is that completely I don't outside? So.
3: Uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't get that sense at all. You'd have to convince me that it's, it's a cautionary tale. Other than, um, you know, the usual, um, the world will stomp on delicate, sensitive people. You know, um, it's not, but with, that's not really a cautionary tale. Um right. Right, or maybe
2: more cautionary for the grown-ups. You know, right. like what, what kind of ethical messages are are right. you projecting? You know, it's it's more about. I don't think we're supposed to be crit- critical of Edward. Certainly, right. No. Um, yeah.
3: one thing I'm, I do. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, Curtis. You go ahead because I was going to take us off somewhere else. Go ahead.
0: Well, I was going to say. I mean, from Edward's perspective, I suppose it could be looked at as a cautionary tale. Right. But, like, he's not the one to whom the tale is being told. So I don't think that that makes Like, it's from sort of the inverted fairy tale perspective, I guess,
1: mm-hmm.
0: that could work. But the story is being told to the granddaughter.
1: Mm-hmm. And what's
0: the story that's being told to her is that there's a very beautiful, if not, you know, if somewhat odd-looking you know, person who made this wonderful thing snow. And I guess it, it's almost the opposite of a cautionary tale. It's it's an encouraging tale. It's it's, you know, like you could imagine this granddaughter growing up and being like, wow, there is this really cool, metaphorically and literally cool person up there playing with ice that, you know, maybe I should go look up when I'm older and can make the journey up the hill kind of thing. Like I, I almost get the sense that there's a, uh, a charge or a challenge being like, you know, set out to the granddaughter, not explicitly, certainly, but, but kind of giving her this idea of like, you know, we had this visitor once a long time ago and the people weren't ready for him, but he's still up there. And if you go looking for him, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe you could experience something that most people don't get to experience. And right. there's, right. there's, uh, that's, I mean, I hadn't thought of that until the question was asked, is this a cautionary tale? But I, I almost feel like whatever the opposite adjective of cautionary
2: mm-hmm.
0: is. Right, I feel right. Like and,
2: and explicitly the scissor man is right. scary, whereas Edward, apart from maybe the initial shock right. of his appearance, isn't. He is that yeah. gentle figure like you said um and it, there's also that's a that's a good peter pan connection i was just gonna say mm. <laughs> peter pan right
1: there yeah and Absolutely. and an
2: interesting thing i mean because that's
0: like there's a lineage to that now too mm-hmm. with peg because peg was the adventurous one who went outside of her little mm-hmm. community and went do you went up the hill and didn't run away screaming when she saw this oddity of nature. Like she said, "Oh, why are you hiding?" and encouraged him to come out. And and I mean, you know, maybe maybe there was a little potential for financial incentive if she could sell him something. But was like very kind to him and gave him astringent for his cuts and you know took care of him and tried to like you know tried to like make him conform and and blend 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 you know, to get the right consistency and that didn't work. Like he didn't conform. And I mean, like he shouldn't have, so that's fine. But like, it also caused problems. And I think there's, there's very much, you know, now you have, it's, it's not just, um, I, well, I mean, I, so we don't know. So this, the, we, we skip a generation, right? Cause we get Peg and Kim and the granddaughter. We don't know, um, you know, Kim's, uh, child, uh, you know, if there, what happens there if if he or she had any experiences with Edward Scissorhands, but, but you have this idea of like, now you have like three, three generations. They're not successive generations, but three generations who potentially, you know, now can go Mm -hmm. up the hill and kind of experience these things. And I think I, well, you know, perhaps better than I do, Pat, um, and Sharon, you may too, like, is, like, is that a thing too? Like the sort of generational aspect to experiencing fairy. And I mean, you know, you've got Bilbo and Frodo who, you know, both kind of go there and back again and, and mm-hmm. kind of have their adventures. And I'm sure there's other stories, right. Of, you know, the sort of generational aspect to, you know, the adventures that are, that could be had. in fairy.
2: Right. Yeah, and I think, I mean, Peter Pan is the the one right. that certainly leapt to my mind of, especially in that moment oh. of, of I'm too old now. Yes, I've forgotten how to fly.
0: Ever so much older. But, than
2: yeah, but um, and, right, yeah. exactly. But but he's still out there, and that suggestion that that does get passed on from generation to generation. Wow.
3: And and to touch again on another Tolkien tale is the the Smith of Wooten Major, where mm-hmm. yeah, yes. yes the children yeah. are, are somebody is yeah. chosen. Yeah. That's he's
1: probably
3: trapped, a better connection. Um, yeah. yeah so. But I do want to say, um, and this might've been where I've, I've been wanting to, to take the conversation to some of the characterization. I loved Peg. I loved her because while perhaps, I mean, her intentions were so genuine. And even though she did try to blend, 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 and hide the scars. Um, it it was is. I, I think her motivation was always with him in mind, with mm. with Edward in mind. Um, and and she was just so consistently. Um, it it would have been easy, I think, to depict everyone in suburbia with their own little, you know. Instances of of uh, their character flaws, you know, or or criticalness or any of those things, but Peg and even her even Bill, they really cared about Edward and they kept that consistent all the way through. And even at the end, she's kind of talking to herself, saying, "Oh, maybe I shouldn't have brought him down here." And you know, um, she she's she never blames him. She doesn't she doesn't uh, say, "Why did I ever bring you here? You've ruined our lives." Um, never she's just the the most in innocently sweet caring uh figure and it was really nice to to see that I think I liked I liked her I preferred her virtue over Kim's you mm. know Kim, Kim was with the Oh yeah, he was with the creep. Why didn't she know who she was with? And she went along with the the whole robbery scheme. She was there. She didn't say no and then go try to warn Edward and somehow have it not work where she couldn't warn him. And you know, there was nothing like that. She was in on it. She was invested in that whole thing. She couldn't she tried to stand up to Jim but really like failed and mm-hmm. kept going along with it. So, for my part, I really really um you know, I could do without Cam. I was totally, I'm, I'm on, I'm, I'm flying the peg flag, I love you, team peg, yeah, team oh. peg, team peg, and that was the impression I remember having, having, when the f- very first time I saw it as a younger person, um, so it isn't necessarily, because I'm like, am I thinking that because I'm the mom now, you know, right, right. <laughs> but even of the, mom's the, the hero story, yeah, yeah. Um uh, but uh I think even at the time I was really taken with just her genuine sweetness and that's how they wrote her and that's how Diane how Diane Weiss played her beautifully, yeah, yeah. perfectly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and I just I really loved that she was that way to the end, even to the point where she knew when to give up. She knew right, when to right. let go. So mm. lover, her, love her Yeah, and Diane Weiss performance is just oh,
2: amazing. Absolutely yeah. fantastic.
3: Because it was never saccharine. I mean, it's so easy yeah. to turn it saccharine and fake and, and, and not, I mean, but it just, for me, for me, that really came from the heart. I and mean, she really, she really sold it. She really
2: mm-hmm. did. Right. And I forget one of the articles or reviews that I was looking at said, um, uh, it, it, you know, kind of started by quoting the Avon calling and then sort of twisted that into Avon is her calling. Like she, <laughs> this is her vocation. Yeah. She mm-hmm. believes yeah. in it and she does good with it and yeah. um, does everything she can to use it for good. Um, yep. And, well, so and even
0: like to the point where, yeah. Even to the point where like she's, she gets so excited about speaking to the owner of the company. Yeah. Like, yeah. like, and, right. and like that—that's one of her goals, right? Like, that's like right, a bucket right. list thing, like, right,
2: right. But it's not even you. Kind of, the, I've kind of forgot. You think of it as, oh, I have an excuse to talk to the head of the company. But what does she talk to them about? It's how to help Edward. It's not right. even it. It helps her career, but her career is not even the goal. It's not like, oh, I have an excuse to talk to them so that now I can advance myself maybe that happens down the line and that's you know an added benefit of this Mm -hmm. of this meeting but Mm -hmm. um but the purpose of her call to the head of the company is share your genius with me so that i can help this person um so even in that she's still sort of giving
3: yeah um And, and she knows that she you know they come in and they uh when and when edward shows up and they all say barbecue at five and she could say no she could she could yeah you know, she, it's she's not stupid she knows what's going on but she just go ahead go ahead and does it and it's not i don't i don't get the sense that's the other thing that where i think she really played it well i mean in some ways she she's she bends but she doesn't give in. Um, she doesn't get run over um, or, or walked over. In in so far as she can, she's she's still verbal. She she's you know she throws her body in between Edward and as much as she can and protects him and and so um, and and she's making excuses. He's just this. He's just that. It's just fine. No no, it's just a little scratch. It's not a big. And so she's she's always there in his corner and and that never deviates. And so.
2: I love that moment, too, when she's selling to her neighbor and the neighbor's like, Peg, you know, I'm never going to buy anything. And she's like, I know. Bye. just <laughs> like, yeah. like the non resentment of yeah. her of her community, even though, like you said, you know that she's smart enough to see their flaws. It's not like she's brainwashed and thinks right. everything is perfect and rosy. She sees you can see that she has frustrations. But she's not bitter about anything. Um, yeah, Team
3: Peg, Woo-hoo. Team
2: All right. Team Peg. Yeah. Um, and I, had a kind of jumping off the issue of Edward's appearance and his sorry. Can I just about
0: and everything? About oh, yeah. peg before we move on. Oh, of course. I, yeah. I, you know, I so I mean, I when this movie came out, I was just going into high school, so um, of course, you know, Winona Ryder certainly caught my eye, um, but. I don't I didn't remember anything about the parents or yeah. you know kind of the the other story. I mean it, it for me it was all like oh yes it's this story in which you know Winona Ryder and Johnny Depp fall in love or whatever <laughs> like that was that was like all I remembered about That's it, it, it that was how it was marketed.
3: That was how it was marketed. So
0: yeah, I mean that was how it was marketed and I yeah. think you know given the sort of you know, way it ends and stuff. I mean, I think that's what we're prompted to remember as well. But I I had no memory of the fact that like, for the first 30, 35 minutes of the film, like Winona Ryder's not even in it. It is all Peg and, and um, you know, Ed, Edward, you know, getting to know each other and, and kind of the, the much slower introduction into the family and the community than I remembered. Um, and I think that's significant. I mean, I think that supports your point, Sharon, of of that peg is, I mean, yes, her her role maybe becomes less focused on as the movie right. goes forward, but there's, I mean, she obviously is a very significant part of the movie. So I think uh, just to just wanted to agree with you there, and, and just kind mm-hmm. of note that that's like I, I was kind of surprised by that fact in, in rewatching it the first time after oh gosh, more than 20 years, probably since I've seen it. so um, yeah
3: Cat. Okay.
2: yeah, she's like she is the kind of moral center of uh, this movie I think. Yeah. Um, so kind of related to Edward's sort of disfigurement or disabilities, um, Deborah asks, what's the significance? of do we think of um so many people telling him that they have a doctor friend everybody has a doctor friend um, that they want to introduce them um which he doesn't necessarily seem completely opposed to i don't know that anybody ever really sits down and asks him what would you like edward everybody kind of
3: no, he you know, he it gives
2: the impression, but he, but he does he say, respond, like, I'd like to meet I him. I would like,
3: yeah, I would yep. like to
2: meet him so, in that one moment, anyway. Yeah. yeah.
3: Um.
2: One thing I noticed this time watching was the when they're at the barbecue, and one of the one of the dads, um, who has a you know a war wound or a prosthetic limb of some kind, says, like, don't ever let anybody say call you a cripple or do these things and um and he's the one who says that to Kim or whoever's out looking for Edward he's the one kind of in the garage saying, Uh where's that freak Uh that cripple um and sort of throwing that term I again I'm not sure I know what to do with um that fact other than that you know I guess the fickleness of of the of the community who um turn on him so sort of quickly, right. and
3: yeah i think I think it was a indicator that even someone who should have been able to empathize with him and uh, it he turned as well there was there was sure. really no hope in that community for him mm-hmm.
0: so. as far as i mean so the offers. I think I think they're kindly, you know, offered like I don't think anyone's like saying, oh, let me, you know, tell you about a doctor who can fix you or whatever. I don't think that's necessarily done out of a, you know, malicious intent or anything. But I think it goes back to that desire of the sort of pressure of conformity of you're different than everyone else. And I mean, that's in the in the tv station that's even the you know implication of the question of like well you know if you did that you know that would mean you're the same as everyone else and and you get the sense that like edward kind of feels that pressure too of like yeah that might be good if i were like everyone else um
3: and and clearly it touches on you know what we were talking about with peg blend 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 but what was interesting about the um the television station interview, was they had just talked about his topiary skills, his hair skills, all of these mm-hmm. skills he has, which he might lose right. if he conforms, if he becomes normal, if he is fixed, if he's corrected. corrected. Um, and so that was kind of a, a you know, I think a, an obvious messagey kind of thing. You know mm-hmm. about being normal and losing what makes you special and different and unique and being okay with that and desiring that that people desire to give up features of and and skills that they have for the sake of normalcy
1: mm-hmm. and right and that
3: goes it's okay or it's good it's desirable right and that goes back to
2: your original question of why why scissor hands and you know i think that his you know, disability or you know the thing that makes him other being linked to the thing that makes him a creator and and a genius um and that there there is you don't have one without the other mm-hmm. um but if it's why possible. would why it's would possible. he want to risk losing that because right. he can't touch the girl he wants to hold um and maybe in his mind i'd like to meet that doctor because it's maybe the sacrifice of the hairdressing salon is worth the ability to have this family that right now he's in danger of injuring every time he tries to get close yeah. um so there's something to gain for him that's too.
3: really really poignant that he that that that's what he values so much that he would give up what makes him unique and special. And at this point is the only skill that he has. That's the only skill that he has are, are the the chippy chippy chop chop stuff. Um, yeah. He would give that up for that. So in a way it's, it's also a story of, of what would you sacrifice mm-hmm. for, for something that you valued so much?
0: So we're creeping up here on 10 30. Uh Eastern time anyway. Sharon's got a few more hours. Uh but uh any other thought and and what about any of these other secondary characters that we haven't talked a lot about? Um I don't know there is a lot to talk about.
2: Um apparently Tim Burton said this in the commentary, and I didn't go and look up his reasoning, Um, and um, partly that was deliberately um, because I kind of don't know what he means by this and wanted to throw it to the group to see if we could figure out maybe what he means by this. Um, That he finds Bill, the dad, uh, the scariest character in the movie. Did that Hmm. strike anybody else? Um, And if so, why? Like, I mean, the only thing I can think of is the kind of relentless normality of him. Because even some of these other housewives are eccentric in their own way. If it's, you know, Joyce, this kind of cougar, you know, mom down the street or, you know, Esmeralda, there's quirk within them. Um, Whereas I feel like maybe you could make an argument for Bill as the most kind of, you know, middle of the road. Is there anything to distinguish him from, you know, what is thought of as this perfectly mundane suburban ideal, but um, I wouldn't have necessarily thought of him as scary. So I didn't know. I, I would anybody
3: else. I do find that rather odd. I mean, if I, if I had to guess the one thing that bill does do at every turn which is the impulse of many parents, people, some people do this. I mean, this is just how they're wired is to make a teaching moment out of everything. And then letting something be, (laughs) you know, and Tim Burton strikes me as the kind of person for whom that would be torture, a nightmare, that that's the only relationship I have with my father my friend my coworker, my boss my whatever I my mean, mom whatever is every turn I make everything I do everything I say becomes a teaching moment and so maybe that's maybe that's what terrifies him or turns him off hmm. one thing I did read though or uh, because I was I was going to um view the movie with the commentary but I decided not to because somebody commented that when the when um, the anniversary edition came out with commentary somebody said oh that was the most disappointing thing in all the world tim burton can't talk in a commentary has nothing useful to say he just kind of half most of the time doesn't say anything and what he does say it might be an inside joke or his own little thought but you know it's it's not that he's not commentary rich you know how some commentaries should just they're just they're so interesting Uh, so i didn't even bother so Mm -hmm. Anyway, but back to Bill, why he's scary.
0: I don't, I mean, the scariest that I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, I don't know that I have anything useful to add to that.
2: Um, um, Divoran Divoran suggests she, Go ahead. That, oh, she was just saying that um, he shrugs off Jim. Uh, he could, you know, seems that he can over, he's on the roof. He should be able to hear this sort of violent, you know, aggressive moment that's happening. And just sort of, you know, doesn't intervene or seem concerned at all. And um, so, yeah, I mean, he has a kind of like, just everything's just sort of fine. You know, he just kind of floats through, like you don't get a real sense of conviction in the same way that you do with Peg. Um, yeah who clearly feels strongly about things and you know, has passion. I'm not sure that he sort of matches her in that. So maybe that's part of it.
3: I don't know. And Deborah also mentions that she found the, uh, she enjoyed the commentary. So maybe I'm missing oh. something. Maybe I'll have to go back and try. Thank you, Deborah, for your vote of confidence no, on that. Your,
2: your mileage may vary. <laughs>
3: right, right.
0: Um, well, and so we should just kind of maybe wrap up with, um, mentioning sort of impact and, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, legacy, I guess, for lack of a better term. Um, I don't mean that as a slight or anything. I just, uh, obviously, um, yes, we see the variety of other strange roles, uh, here that, um,
2: Right. No fewer as. than six other Tim Burton, Johnny Depp collaborations about pale men with dark hair <laughs> and and creepy shadows under their eyes who are kind of eccentric and inhabit and a strange world. Um, so is this sort of a case of diminishing returns? She asks as not a leading question at all. That's a genuine open ended question.
0: Is, is,
3: I've not seen they, most of these, so okay. I can't oh, answer
2: really? that. Oh. Um, well, I've seen most of them. There's a couple I haven't. Um, like I said, Ed Wood down there in the bottom left, um, I think is maybe a candidate for future movie club years. Um, <laughs> maybe we need a break from from this uh, formula but um, for a couple cycles. but. Um, it's a for anybody that doesn't know it's about um edward d wood jr who um has been deemed the worst director who ever lived by a few different critic polls um he was a real guy who made um terrible terrible movies in the 50s not um,
3: even D. let's call him d like well, like
2: well, z movies yeah um, uh plan nine from outer space being famously oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the worst movie ever made so I already have a Seinfeld reference here that my other Seinfeld references, uh, in the Chinese restaurant episode where they don't get to the movies, they're going to see plan nine from outer space, which, you know, <laughs> Seinfeld wants to see because it's the worst movie ever made and it's going to be great. Um, and so Ed Wood is, uh, you know, for me, another contender of the best among these collaborations, but, um, He's so, a very eccentric character. Yeah.
0: Can can you just maybe go like clockwise and, and say what all the movies are that are depicted here? Because maybe not everyone even recognizes sure. what they are.
2: So top left uh is uh Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, right? The the okay. remake. Um yeah. uh you know, Johnny Depp is Willy Wonka there. Um and then Ed Wood is below him with his film crew Um, uh, to the right of that is Corpse Bride, which was Mm -hmm. an animated stop motion um, sort of in the vein of a nightmare before Christmas. Uh, And then to the right of that is Sleepy Hollow. Mm
4: -hmm.
2: uh, At Ichabod Crane is the character. And then above him is Sweeney Todd, which is a Stephen Sondheim musical. Um, And then to the left of that, this is one I haven't seen, is Dark Shadows, which was uh, an old uh, vampire TV show, like a soap opera in the 60s or 70s, I think. And so they did a a movie version of that, um, which is one of the ones I haven't seen, so I can't comment too much on it. Um, Arthur mentions Glenn or Glenda, which was one of Ed Wood's movies. Um, Ed Wood was a transvestite as well. So um, in addition to making really bizarre sci-fi and horror movies about mm-hmm. aliens and monsters and you know plans from outer space to take over the world, um, he also made a movie called Glen or Glenda um, about a transvestite. Um, so yeah, it's, that's a, Ed Wood is wonderful. Um and so yeah, I mean I don't know if anybody has any other favorites from that group. I mean Edward's clearly mine. I remember Sleepy Hollow coming out when I was still fairly young and enjoying that at the time. It's been a while since I've seen it.
3: I enjoy it. I I, I will rewatch it every once in a while, maybe around Halloween. I don't find it repulsive. I find it entertaining. I really yeah. do. I do find it entertaining.
0: I lied earlier when I said I hadn't seen most of these. I've actually not seen any of them. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> I, I realized as you were running through them, I'm like, yeah,
2: no, I haven't seen, I haven't seen. I. So, you, so you're so you not tired of the old depth Burton collaborations yet? <laughs> I <guess laughs> like not. Most people um, are. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, so the that other thing good.
0: that's not on here is um, there's actually a comic book. Not adaptation, but a continuation of um, oh, the Edward right. Scissorhands story. So, mm-hmm. uh, and, and it's like it's like years later. It's not like immediate continuation or something. Um, but it's, the
1: granddaughter?
0: No, I think I don't know. I've not read it, but I no. I think it's I think it's still him, or maybe maybe it's the daughter. Maybe that's the missing uh, generation that we don't see in the movie. I don't, but I don't. No, for sure.
3: Um, it's, it's, maybe the granddaughter is his his daughter. <laughs> maybe maybe Kim's maybe. daughter got together. He
0: reproductive organs before hands.
3: You <laughs> can't take his suit off. No, I know, I know. As far as we know,
0: As far as we know. And also, maybe maybe the weirdest out of all of this is that there was a. Uh, species of extinct lobster type creature that was named after Johnny Depp specifically because of this role. Um, so there's a, there's a drawing of it. Um, I mean, it, they found skeletons of it. Obviously it's been extinct for uh-huh. some time. So we don't know what it actually looked like, I guess, except, you know, based on the skeleton, but um, just kind of a fun. Yeah. addition there. Yeah.
2: Um, we're getting um, some love for Corpse Bride in the comments, so that's one too. Yeah, I, to check out.
0: I'm not opposed to seeing any of them. I just realized as you were naming them, I'm like, yeah, I've not actually seen any of these. I um, don't think I've
2: seen Corpse Bride either. Actually, yeah.
0: the the only version of um, you know Sweeney Todd I've ever seen is the one uh, portrayed by Andy in the office.
2: <laughs> so, um. um yeah. Well, DeVore also points out the connection Sweeney calls the razor an extension of his hand. So it's another mm-hmm. character with uh you know, scissors for hands, but decidedly less gentle than yeah. Edward for sure. Yeah. Um sure. completely different not, character. Not
3: quite so um, pure at heart.
2: Not quite so pure. Um, um, I think
3: I think we need to not leave without mentioning really quickly that the um, the music by Danny Alfman was extremely influential and has been regurgitated and reused. Um, in many forms because it's so evocative it really is and uh, i think he started um taking over writing commercial jingles and and scoring commercials because people were doing it instead of him and he wanted to do it right so but it is the uh the music is very evocative you'll hear it all over the place um and um it it's like any other film um it's it's not the same movie If you don't have the music, the music is another character, and it really, really shapes shapes any kind of uh, film uh, that you experience. So it's it's and
2: and beyond their collaborations, their multiple collaborations. I think Elfman and Burton are similar in that they're so distinct that they're very easy to parody. Exactly, Um, and they are very easy to turn into cliches. And I think you know the arguments are certainly made that. They've become self parodies after a while, and and maybe the, their their voices are so specific and so uh-huh. distinct that uh-huh. um, it can become a bit sort of repetitive if uh-huh. if you're not sort of careful. Uh-huh. Um, but that was funny to read that Elfman was like, "I can rip myself off. Why am I letting yeah. other people yeah. rip me off? <laughs> it's like, right. I can do this," yeah. and started scoring commercials himself because they were all just using edward scissorhands music yeah um, which is kind of funny yeah very influential too though yes for sure Mm -hmm. and that doesn't diminish in fact that only increases the impact of the original Mm -hmm. thing to say that people keep going back and referencing to it and ripping it off um yeah although to go back to the kind of finish on the final slide again um you know The Shape of Water is really the only thing I could even think of to compare this movie to in terms of story and genre. Um, Just as, you know, gothic fairy tale romance isn't a genre where I could think of a lot of other examples. Um, And that's one recent one that sort of leaps to mind. But I, I feel like as much as you can sort of, parody Edward Scissorhands. Not a lot of other people have done things very much like it. um, Other than Tim Burton,
3: you know, (laughs) but it's really Sleepy Hollow. Sleepy Hollow is a Gothic romance fairy tale. Sure. Sure. Right. So he kind of hit on
2: a form a format that he liked, but are there any other filmmakers that really kind of did the Burton-esque style? I don't think many of them have.
0: Yeah. I, I can't think of anything. If I mean, if you can't think of anything, then it's not likely that I would. But,
2: yeah. Well, maybe there's something obvious I'm not thinking of. Um, I, I feel like you
0: could have any two of those elements together. It's the three of them.
2: <laughs> it's the three of them together. All three yeah.
0: of them it's that yeah. Uh, yeah. makes it hard. Right. Yeah. And
2: the kind of sweetness, the kind of mm-hmm. the romance is in. Bolder type than the horror element, you know. Um, I feel,
0: I feel like, like could we get like a Tim Burton's Wuthering Heights? Like I, I feel like right. that would that could be like maybe along the same line. Like that could be like the third in a in a trilogy with these. But two. Are
2: there, there's not enough jokes in Wuthering Heights. Like you need some goofiness.
0: Yeah, I mean, it could be an adaptation. It doesn't have to be.
3: Ah, uh, yeah. It would be a sparse adaptation. That thing is grim. I, well,
0: like
3: I think the, the humor
0: is... I'm big, not disagreeing with that. I'm just saying. You
2: know, I think that I think what's lacking there is the the whimsy and the humor. Yeah. Um,
3: that you would know, be the challenge. It has
2: the romance. It has the gothic. But where's the whimsical fairy tale side of it? It's missing a third sort of element.
3: That which would be is, the Which is my could point. Could he that's would be bring <laughs> it. You can get
0: you can get two of those things together. It's it's that third piece that uh, Mm -hmm. makes it hard. I don't know. Maybe maybe the next step in uh, the movie club is is right. Maybe we should go the film film route and uh, start writing scripts and see if we can come up with something.
2: Sure, sell them to to Tim Burton
0: or we've gone too late and we're in the bad idea portion of the episode <laughs> and, and we should quit while we're ahead.
3: Yeah. Alrighty.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, thank you everyone for joining. We'll be back on uh, September 6th. Was it for uh, predestination? So please join us then. Um, read the uh, short story all you zombies by Robert Heinlein too it's I mean it's not that long um, a few minutes and uh, be prepared to talk about it because we'll do some comparison there as well thank you all for joining we'll see you next time bye bye
3: I-